It's the Americhips with Kim Monson. Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal. The most important story. The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump. The latest in politics and world affairs. Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. Because ideas matter. It's the Americhicks, dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation. It is Monday, and there's all kinds of headlines to go through. We're going to do that in the first and second segment. In the third and fourth segment, we will be talking with... Rob Nadelson, he is the Fellow of Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Independence Institute. He's a former constitutional law professor, and he has uh, taken a look at this National Popular Vote Compact, which was passed here in Colorado, and uh, the other countries that uh, are uh, doing this uh, National Popular Vote, and you're going to be very surprised at some of those bastions of freedom, like uh, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay. Uh, the Philippines, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. So you won't want to miss that. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. He's written a, a piece just recently. The Democrats are pushing for the third world popular vote. That's going to be in the third and fourth segments. Uh, so first of all, uh, Steve, good morning. I want to say thank you to producer Steve and Zach and Patty and Keith for keeping this train on the track. How are you doing, Steve? Well, normally I'd sit here and whine about, oh, it's a Monday, but I mean, <laughs> you look at this view out our window, it's incredible. So yeah, I'm I'm fine. Okay. Well, there's a lot of news to go through. And the other thing, my listeners, I want to say thank you. Greatly appreciate you. And Steve, I hate to say it, but I made another mistake. You know, when I was... Um, Referring to D-Day, I referred to it uh, initially in our email newsletter and I think on the air as well as as uh, a day of infamy. And Larry reached out to me and said, wait a minute, you need to look up the word. And I think I was probably referring to FDR, FDR's speech after Pearl Harbor, where infamy means something evil. Uh, and uh, and uh, D-Day was anything but that. This was... You know, the Allies, the Americans, going up on the beaches of Normandy, France, and uh, and fighting evil, and uh, the Nazis, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, Hitler. And so it was not a day of infamy. Certainly Pearl Harbor was, but not D-Day. <clears throat> and so I wanted to say thank you, first of all, to Larry for reaching out to me and keeping me straight. Uh, it's happening more than I'd like to admit, Steve, but I think that happens sometimes with a live show. I saw that in your show notes, and I'm really glad that he caught it, and I'm also glad that you go in there and take the time to set the record straight. Absolutely. So uh, as we're going to jump into headlines here, though we ta- we're talking a lot about socialism. Uh, socialism seems to be kind of a she word with a number of people these days. It's important to remember that socialism is force, and we as Americans, we like freedom. Uh, the studies show... Surveys show that that Americans still like freedom. There is a a percentage that likes force, but the question is uh, freedom versus force or force versus freedom. And we have, as you mentioned, Steve, we now have the Stephen Kessler smell test. Uh, Stephen Kessler is this young PhD that's on the show on a regular basis, 
And he says, when we're talking to socialists slash liberalists, there's three questions. First of all, do you have any skin in the game? And what that means is, is are you using other people's money to push forward policies that you think are important? Because if you think they're important, then you need to make sure that you have skin in the game also. Secondly, are we bringing people up or are we yanking them down? And once again, you go to this whole white privilege uh, narrative that is out there. Instead of trying to build everybody up, it's trying to yank people down. And that is what's so wrong about that. And then lastly, you felt good, but did you do good? And Steve, we're going to go back to that in just a minute after we do our inspiration as well as our funnies. Now, we're going to be talking about taxes today. So, But first of all, regarding your inspiration, Andrew Carnegie was the great industrialist and a great philanthropist. Uh, as many of you may remember, he became very, very wealthy. And one of the things that he did is he gave money. It wasn't a government program. He gave money and built libraries across the, the United States. I grew up in a little town in western Kansas, and our library was built with money from, uh, our initial library was built with money from Andrew Carnegie. And he says, do your duty and a little more, and the future will take care of itself. Again, that's Andrew Carnegie, do your duty and a little more, and the future will take care of itself. So, Steve, are you ready for the funnies? I have three uh, little, oh, I, I guess this is more on politics today. So I have three quotes for you. Bring it. Okay, this is Henry Kate the Seventh. He said, the problem with political jokes is that they get elected. Number two, oh. why, <laughs> why pay money to have your family tree traced? Just go into politics and your opponents will do it for you. Absolutely. And last, <laughs> lastly, George Carlin. He said, bipartisan usually means that a larger than usual deception is being carried out. Is that not true? <laughs> okay, first of all, before we jump into some of the other headlines, Steve, when we were preparing for the show, what was on your mind, you said, this is the Steve Kessler smell test you felt good but did you do good michael bloomberg what's your thoughts well uh, on him first of all apologies to dr kessler the calling this the smell test is my doing not his so uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, if he's listening today I, I don't want him to get alarmed this story popped up i think friday uh that michael bloomberg former new york city mayor is going to drop 500 million dollars of his own money into uh, sh prematurely shutting down coal plants across the United States. And my very first thought went to the, these three questions that you know Dr. Kessler has posed, especially the last one. You felt good, but did you do good? I mean, what's the end result of shutting down coal plants prematurely is that people's electric rates are probably going to go up. So there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people whose cost of living is going to be adversely impacted just because of this bozo, I'm sorry, uh, and his whatever is motivating him. But I, I want to go to the first question. Do you have any skin in the game? All right. it looks well, he, he it, looks good because he's spending $500 millions of his own dollars. But how will you be about halfway through this process and find out that he's getting some kind of a, a kickback in the process that probably totals more than $500 million. So it, it becomes to him an investment. 
Well, yeah, that may be. The other thing is, is it goes to the second question. Are we bringing people up or are we yanking them down? When you start to uh, increase the cost of energy, which is a basic need, and there's no way that you don't by, and we're going to talk about electric cars, you continue to create more and more demand for electricity, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the price is going to go up. And then you take away the uh, coal-fired plants, which is abundant and affordable and reliable energy. Wind and solar is not reliable. And you actually have to have uh, coal-fired plants to back that up. And so what is going to happen to people It's going to push us back down to being third world countries. You see that with the national popular vote. We're going to talk with um, Rob Nadelson about that in the third and fourth segment. And, you know, America is this this beacon where everyday people can um, go after their hopes and dreams if the government stays out of the way. But the thing about it, Steve, is that, that socialism basically controls all the major aspects of people's lives and they may do it through rules and regulations and so you have this big bureaucratic state which is what we've moved to in America with this administrative state instead of our representative government and so you think about it Uh, here Bloomberg what he's advocating for basically is socialism of energy and whenever government gets involved in something the price goes up and the supply goes down. And uh, and then we see it also in housing. They talk about affordable housing, but what they do is they have these urban uh, bar- boundaries around uh, cities, and then they use tax dollars through economic development to bring more people in. When you bring more people in, you restrict the supply, and the cost goes up. And uh, so we see it in energy. We see it in housing. Uh, we're going to talk about it in this next uh, headline regarding transportation. You control how people can move around. And once again, are we yanking people up because government is controlling that? Or are we, um, are we building them up or are we yanking them down? And so Bloomberg, in this case, you know, he's going to increase the cost of energy and it's going to make it so tough on everyday people. And then they're going to come in with a government program to assist low-income people. And ultimately, Steve, what happens is uh, it, it's um, the, the middle class, which has been so great. That is the, the unique thing about America is a vibrant middle class. It starts to go away. And then you have the haves and you have the have-nots. And the headlines that Patty has put together uh, today that we're going to go through, I mean, it's just that's what it talks about is the haves and the have-nots. So let's go to break. Before we do that, though, uh, the the Rockies, I tell you, they uh, lost one to the Mets, uh, 6-1. to They come home for a three-game homestand uh, with the Cubs. And then I think the Padres come to town as well. Uh, last night, the Bruins and St. Louis. St. Louis could have put it away in the Stanley Cup, but it's going to Game 7. So that's going to be exciting. And then to, tonight, the Golden State Warriors play the Toronto Raptors in the NBA uh, playoffs. And Toronto leads 3-1. to one. And Hooters Restaurants is my place to be this summer. It's the place to watch all these games. Enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like t- uh, fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool off this summer. And uh, they have nine items for $9, 11 to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. 
Those um, delicious menu items are great. Fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburgers, Philly cheesesteaks, and, of course, the boneless wings. So dine in. You can get the, your Hooters wings to go, or you can have them delivered right to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. We're going to go to break. We'll be right back. All AmeriChick sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com. Social media is important to the AmeriChicks since it's an avenue we can utilize to hear from and speak to all of our friends. For those of you who enjoy listening to the show, we'd love to hear what's on your radar. Follow us and talk to us at AmeriChicks Twitter and Facebook pages. Also, if you're a business owner who could benefit from some extra foot traffic from like-minded friends, consider advertising on the AmeriChicks radio show. Contact us at AmeriChicks.com or email Kim at AmeriChicks.com. Don't miss Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Join Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks at Water's Edge Winery in Centennial or Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock. And coming soon, Vino and Veritas in Northern Colorado. Know why you believe what you believe and be able to have conversations with friends, family, and colleagues. Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks would like to thank qualified listeners, veterans listening to veterans, brought to you by Dan Brooke and Cheryl Tootin in Centennial. In Castle Rock, Kim would like to thank Colorado Custom Services, promotional products, embroidery, engraving, and more. Thank you for sponsoring this fascinating study of the U.S. Constitution. Sign up today at AmeriChicks.com. Hey, welcome back to the Ameritics with Kim Munson, where we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. <clears throat> Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. And uh, we are having a conversation right now about headlines. And first and foremost, uh, you felt good, but did you do good? And that is one of the things that I think is important regarding this whole transportation thing here in Colorado. Tim Jackson, who's the head of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association, had a very had a very important piece in the Colorado Sun. And he said, trust Colorado consumers to choose the vehicle that fits their needs. He says, despite Tesla's growing struggles, you've probably seen some of its cars tooling around town, at least if you live in urban areas like Denver, where drivers don't have to worry about their batteries running out and stranding them on the side of the roll highway. But if you'd like to buy your own Tesla Model S, be prepared to dig deep. Pricing for the Model S runs 75000 to 96000 before potential governmental incentives. These incentives highlight a problem with the government handouts designed to subsidize electric vehicles. One recent study shows that more than half of the electric vehicle subsidies went to households making more than $200,000 a year. And as John Adams said, Facts are stubborn things. When lack of reliable transportation stands between too many Americans and stable employment, it is truly, sadly ironic that government would reserve these generous new vehicle handouts to those who need it the least. But it gets worse. 
the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission is considering the adoption of California's zero emission vehicle, that's ZEV, rules that would actually place a financial penalty of several thousand dollars or more on those who, for whatever reason, find that an electric vehicle doesn't fit their needs. So far, the response from Colorado consumers to electric cars has been muted. They first hit showrooms in 2011, but new vehicle buyers still choose uh, them less than 3% of the time. So the Colorado Sun recently reported that automakers had offered to make all their California electric vehicle models available in Colorado starting in January. And Steve, I went down to the uh, hearings on this, and that was one of the things that the dim... Um, politicians were asking they said oh we've got to have we've got to force people to be buying these vehicles because uh, the dealers are not giving us all the vehicle choices and the dealers have come back and said hey we will make sure that that happens if you don't incorporate this force but you know what they wanted to incorporate the force on that so it's not surprising that 77% of Coloradans said in a May survey released by the American Energy Alliance that California should not be able to determine what kinds of cars can be sold in other states. In addition, 70% of Coloradans agree that electric cars might be a good choice for some, but those purchases should not be paid for by other consumers. So if you want an electric vehicle, you should be able to purchase it but not at the expense of everybody else and not via government force. And let's just, again, take a look at the money here. So somebody pays anywhere from, what was that, 75000 to 96000 for a Tesla Model S. In Colorado, you're looking at that and you're realizing that person was able to shave $12,500 off of their income tax bills. And that would be 7500 on the national level and 5000 here in Colorado. Now, that means everybody else has to make up that revenue if governments continues to spend the money that they want to. So you and I are helping that person be able to drive down the road in that Model S. But the other thing is, is uh, Tesla actually receives that full price. And then the other thing about Tesla is uh, there's going to be, with these uh, California mandates, uh, there's going to be penalties to manufacturers, the other manufacturers, if they don't sell enough of this arbitrary number of cars of, that people don't want. And so to offset that, they have to buy credits. And the only company they can buy them from is Tesla. So I find it so frustrating when we have um, in our education system, people talk about Elon Musk, Elon Musk, who is the founder of Tesla, that he's this great, brilliant guy. Well, you know, quite frankly, or financial guy, is you can be pretty brilliant when you've got government forcing everybody else to buy stuff from you because you are offering something that people don't want. Your thoughts, Steve? It kind of reminds you of that, you know, the Warner Brothers cartoon where the boss is just this little scrawny guy, and right behind him is this giant guy, you know, monster of a guy hulking right. over him. Like, there's the enforcer. So there's Tesla with the government, you know, standing right behind him. We have maintained here many times that I, I I really get the sense that the average American, the middle class people, don't know how much they're being taxed and and from which direction. But there's a great example right there in terms of coming in the back door. You're subsidizing uh, the the guy down the street who thinks he's so cool because he has a, a Tesla in his garage, but you're helping to pay for that. 
Well, for sure. And typically, the people that have a Tesla in their garage, they have other cars that they want to, <clears throat> that they drive that are more reliable, and they really need to get someplace like going up to the mountains. The the other effect on this is what it will do though is it's going to increase the cost of the vehicles that people want. So your your dealers are going to have to go out and you know buy these credits from Tesla. And where you know who makes that up? It's going to be us, the consumer. So that hardworking family out there that you know the little guy that wants to get a pickup and and you know, start his own little business, it's going to increase the cost of that up to three thousand dollars. That is a lot of money for everyday hardworking people. So um, I think again, when you look at the social uh, socialist impacts of this uh, on this uh, regarding the ZEVs, people may say, "I feel good," but did you do really do good? And do you have skin in the game? Are you paying your full fare, or are you getting all these tax credits? I mean, this smell test that we've come up with, uh, that Stephen Kessler's come up with, is pretty important. The other thing, we talked about the Trump's tariffs on uh, Friday morning, and guess what? Over the weekend, Mexico, it looks like, uh, has come to the table on this. And uh, Hugh Hewitt had an opinion piece. He said, Trump's big win leaves critics sputtering. This was in the Washington Post. Because And he says, because President Trump emerges as a clear winner from his week-long confrontation with Mexico over our neighbor's lax enforcement of its southern border, reflexive Trump critics will scramble to find some way of containing what is a clear Trump triumph, which came with assists by Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who conducted the key negotiations. Already we have heard about long-term damage to trust between the North American allies. I, I have to interject. What about the trust of Mexico letting these people just walk across their country and come to our, our borders? This has gone on for years and years and years under both Democrat and Republican administrations. Uh, but about, and then we've, uh, Hewitt goes on to say about investor nervousness and Trump's unpredictability. This sort of flailing about to deny the obvious says nothing about Trump and much about those critics who could no more admit he played high-stakes poker and won around on border security than they can admit that the president delivered a magnificent tribute to the heroes of Normandy on Thursday. <clears throat> much of the media is overheated now, and like an engine that has run too long without an oil change, they begin to seize up, stall, and even melt. That Trump has contributed to the slow wreck of American media is undeniable. It's a feature, not a bug, of his presidency to attack, attack, attack the media elites. And no matter how often center-right journalists counsel him to abandon the uh, Stalinist enemy of the people rhetoric, he hasn't because it is triggers a flaming hatred among the ideologies of the left, with platforms and elites eager to signal each other that they are part of the tribe, menaced by this Godzilla from Trump Tower. Voters, though, not just the Twitter Democrats, but voters of all ages and all ideologies, are a pretty smart bunch, Hewitt goes on to say. Assume for a moment that they know generally that tariffs are a lousy idea in terms of economic growth. Assume as well that they know that tariffs can be an instrument of national power in confrontations unrelated to economic growth. If Trump invited Democrats back to the White House for immigration reform and border security talks right now, urging them to be as serious as the Mexican government has been about the border crisis, it might actually work. House Democrats passed an immigration bill last week. Senate Republicans could quickly pass their own version to get a joint House-Senate conference with the White House participation. 
and everyone could win the United States and Mexico, the President and the House Speaker, both parties, the undocumented in this country seeking regularization, and the desperate and easily exploited poor of Central America. Steve, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens on this, but to, uh, for him to get Mexico to the table when on Friday morning all the critics were crying wolf was uh, astonishing to me. And you know what? Let's go, let's go to break here in just a minute. Before we do that, though, Jason McBride is on the line. And Jason McBride, what is on your mind this morning? Uh, well, I think it's funny when you talk about the big tax breaks for Tesla for the people making over 200000 So I guess tax breaks for the wealthy are just fine with Democrats as long as it's the wealthy that are doing what they want them to do. Uh, true, true that, Jason McBride, true that. Shouldn't we start screaming, no more tax breaks for the wealthy? Maybe we should just switch our <laughs> campaign. Uh, I think like I think that I think we should. I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, I think it's it's all you're talking about headlines. Uh, so the jobs report came in uh, weaker than expected on Friday, and uh, you're, if you remember, we had one that was a little weaker than expected a while back, and then like right. the next mm-hmm. one that came out was just just blew it out of the park. But it's great reading the headlines when this happens. Here's the New York Times. A weak jobs report poses a new challenge to Trump, a slowing economy. Uh, Here's Vox, because they love Trump so much, too. May jobs report. Wage growth and job growth disappoints. Bloomberg, Trump's good sector jobs boom was great while it lasted. Oh, so gloomy and and doomy, but uh, they ought to have smiley faces next to it because you could tell they're very, very happy about it. You know, and that's the problem. When you don't like Trump and you root for him to not be successful, you're really rooting for the everyday hardworking people to not be successful. And that is so frustrating. Well, it is, and uh, I, I hope that we get a, uh, just a stunning jobs report the next time around, because I'm sure they'll all come back and say, well, I guess it was just a one-time blip of weakness. Uh, I hope you can detect my sarcasm there, yeah. I'm laying it on pretty thick, Kim. I, I get that. And, uh, Jason, the, what really matters, though, to people is their own personal economy. <clears throat> and you, <clears throat> sorry about that, you That's and the, okay. the folks over at uh, Presidential Wealth Management can help people with their own personal economy. Well, we consider it to be our job to help people uh, sleep better at night, to have a clear picture of where they're headed, and to do everything we can to to provide them with uh, the (coughs) retirement that they're hoping for and to have them uh, be happy, uh, healthy, and wealthy. You got it. And so more information, that is chickspresidential.com. That's chickspresidential.com. Jason, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye, Kim. Have a great day. We'll be right back with Rob Danielson regarding the national popular vote. Dan Predovich and his team at Predovich & Company help your business plan ahead financially. The AmeriChicks with Kim Munson highly recommends Predovich & Company as your financial business consultant. Predovich & Company will take care of your tax preparation, bookkeeping, and business advisory services. Dan Predovich and his team want to learn the unique needs of your business through real, honest dialogue. Because of their advanced technological capabilities, Predovich & Company can help clients anywhere in the United States. Call 303-791-3000 to start preparing now for next year's tax season. Organize your business finances with Predovich & Company. Call 303-791-3000 today. 
You want to succeed, so you need to dress for the job, event, or relationship that you seek. For over 30 years, entrepreneur, stylist, and Americhick Kim Munson has been helping women look their very best. And guys, Kim can help you with made-to-measure shirts that fit great and you'll love to wear. Guys and gals, if you want to up your game and freshen your look, email Kim at Americhicks.com for your initial style consult. Kim at Americhicks.com. to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, Americhicks.com, and sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests, topics, and events. Thrilled today to be having a conversation with Rob Nadelson. He is, uh, had, had been a constitutional law professor for many years. He is now the Senior Fellow of Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Independence Institute. And he really understands all these things about this national popular vote. This is uh, something that is going to be on the ballot uh, in, in Colorado here in 2000. And uh, is it 2019 or 2020? It's 2019, right, John? Uh, right, Rob? I think it's 2020. Oh, is it 2020? Okay. So we're going to be faced with this on our ballot regarding the national popular vote. And uh, Rob, welcome. I think a lot of people don't understand what this is exactly. I think that's right. First, I'm I'm thrilled to be back with uh, back with you, Kim. Um, it's been a, been a little bit of a while. It's great um, to have you back. The national popular vote movement or compact is actually a a campaign for an interstate compact that would change how we elect our president. Currently, as you know, the voters of each state choose presidential electors for that state. Uh, each state gets as many presidential electors as it has senators and representatives combined. So in Colorado, you've got seven representatives, two senators, nine electoral votes. In Pennsylvania, they have two senators, 18 representatives, 20 electoral votes. And then um, we, we, the people, vote in November. And then the following month, the electors we have chosen uh, get together in their respective state capitals and they choose the president. Now, that form of indirect election has been around ever since the Constitution was established, and it has worked exceedingly well uh, for reasons we can explain later. However, it occasionally, about 7% of the time, uh, produces as the president someone who did not get the most popular votes. Sometimes that's because the person who did get the most popular votes was essentially a regional candidate, and the system is set up to discourage regionalism, to make sure that whoever is elected president has natural, national support. So, for example, in 2000, and this has only happened four times, but in 2000, uh, George W. Bush was elected president, even though he had a fraction of a percentage less of the popular vote than Al Gore did. And then in the 2016 election, Donald Trump was chosen president, even though he had about 2% of the popular vote less than Hillary Clinton uh, did. 
as I mentioned, this doesn't happen very much, and it only ha- and when it does happen, the person who's elected president is extremely close in the popular vote. But it has angered some people, and so they would like to go to a system whereby whoever wins the plurality of the popular votes na- nationally is elected president. And by a plurality, I don't necessarily mean a majority. It could be just the person who gets the most votes. A person could get 35%, let's say, in a field of four, and that person would have a plurality and be elected president. And the way the national popular vote people uh, want to do this is they want the states to enter into an interstate compact with each other whereby they would assign their presidential electors not according to the way the people of their state voted, but according to whomever won the uh, plurality of the national popular vote. So if, for example, in the next election, Joe Biden is on the ballot against Donald Trump and Joe Biden won a, uh, a plurality of the vote, then all of Colorado's electors would go to Joe Biden, even if it turned out that the people of Colorado voted for Trump. So that's the basic structure. And once, once they get enough states to sign on, uh, to represent a majority of the Electoral College, because you need a majority of the Electoral College to be elected president, then presumably this compact would come into effect, and however the people of those states voted wouldn't matter, uh, at least not in an immediate sense, their electoral votes, their electors would be assigned to whomever won a plurality nationwide. So the effect, as I mentioned, would be to create a system whereby we would elect the president according to the individual who got the most votes, no matter how small a percentage that was. Well, Rob, it seems to me like this, I mean, I think there's voter fraud out there. And uh, Los Angeles, Judicial Watch had filed a suit because Los Angeles city and county had more people registered to vote than actually lived there. And so in essence, we would be giving our vote, our voice to these big population centers. And I think that that's ripe for voter fraud. That's an important objection against it. Um, It's not just that the large voting centers can outvote the rest of the country. At this point, they can't. It's that the large voting centers represent an opportunity for, as you said, voter fraud and other kinds of voter inflation. Now, let's take California as an example, since you chose Los Angeles. In California, once you adopt national popular vote, that means that California's influence depends on inflating its vote totals as much as possible. Um, And there are various ways of inflating your vote totals. Some of them are perfectly legal. For example, California could pass a law saying that 16-year-olds in that state can vote, or 14-year-olds in that state could vote. California could pass a law saying that convicted felons could vote. Perfectly legal. Vermont does it. But I don't think most people want convicted felons to vote. But that would be a a way in which California could increase its leverage. California could um, register non-citizens. You know, a lot of people don't understand that uh, the control of the voting is mostly at the state level. And states can, theoretically, anyway, enfranchise non-citizens. So they may decide, well, we've got a lot of people living in California who are not citizens. They need to have a a voice in the presidential election. They could enfranchise them. And then the final way they could do that is the illegal way, and that is by voter fraud. 
uh, and there are all kinds of ways of perpetuating voter fraud. But one thing you would need is a friendly chief election officer in California, a friendly secretary of state, because what the National Voter Compact says, National Popular Vote Compact says, is that every secretary of state of every state must accept the certified totals from every other state. So, for example, if the Colorado Secretary of State knew there was voter fraud in California, if voter fraud in California had been blazoned across the, the, the in banner headlines across the Washington Post and the New York Times and documented by a thousand different independent investigations, nevertheless, if the California Secretary of State certified the fraudulent voter totals, we in Colorado and in every other state would be bound by them. So... The national popular vote it creates this incentive for just getting more warm bodies to the elector to the to the polls without regard to whether these folks should be voting or know anything about voting, and it also certainly increases the incentive to voter fraud. Well, it seems like it delegitimizes uh, people's people's vote, and the right to vote is sacred to Americans. Although I I do uh, I think that people, if you are not informed on the issues and you're not informed on the candidates, then either get informed or don't vote, uh, because that I think is a number an, another way that we influence these elections. Um, before we go into the next segment, though. There are some constitutional issues regarding this national popular vote compact. What are they? Well, there are several, but let's focus on two of them. One is that this is an interstate compact, and the Constitution says that interstate compacts have to be approved by Congress. This has not been approved by Congress. Now, the national popular vote people come back and they say, well, the Supreme Court has punched an exception in that requirement. Uh, in a case uh, called Multi-State Tax Commission versus U.S. Steel, decided back in 1978. And they say that uh, under the exception of the U.S. Supreme Court, the only time you need the approval of Congress is if uh, the federal government is weakened some way by an interstate compact. Uh, and therefore, they say that uh, congressional approval is not um, is not um, necessary. There are at least three different vulnerabilities in their argument. First, it's not at all clear that today's Supreme Court would follow the multi-state tax commission uh, case because it, it, that case goes contrary to the text of the Constitution. And whatever you think about today's Supreme Court, they do tend to be much more respectful of the text of the Constitution than the Supreme Court was back in 1978. Secondly, you can read that case in two separate ways. You can say, well, you need congressional approval only if the compact weakens the federal government. Or you can say that what it means is you need congressional approval if the federal system is changed by the compact. And that is certainly the case here, because one of the purposes of the Electoral College is to preserve the integrity of the states um, and, the, and the federal system. And this uh, particular compact undermines that. And then finally, and this is a point I think that the national popular vote people have overlooked, is that, in fact, this compact does weaken the federal, the, the federal government. It does weaken Congress because we have a system, which not too many people know about, which says that if you don't get a majority in the Electoral College, there, there's a runoff election in the House of Representatives for president and in the Senate for vice president. And, then, and this particular compact does away with those runoff elections. So I think that they, this really does need congressional approval. 
and uh, and I think the national popular vote people are uh, are deluding themselves to think the contrary. The the other problem is, and this is a matter that they obviously had not investigated at all. The nature of the power that they are relying upon, the power of the states to choose their how electors are chosen, uh, the power of the states to choose the method for selecting electors, that power is given to the state legislatures by the Constitution, and, and according to a long series of court decisions, it has to be exercised in accordance with certain standards. Uh, specifically, the standards have to reflect what the founders' design was. Attempts to use that power to, let's say, sell our electors to the highest bidder or to give the electors to whomever wins the national popular vote, that is contrary to the founders' design and is very unlikely to be held upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court under this line of cases. Again, I, I, think, it, I think that the... Um, uh, the national popular vote people never really considered these cases, but uh, I think that the probabilities are, if it came before the U.S. Supreme Court, they would find themselves find that compact struck down. Well, I think the national popular vote people actually are not um, considering the Constitution. <clears throat> excuse me, Rob, uh, at all because uh, this is highly unconstitutional. If you want to change the Constitution, you have to go through the amendment process. Well, that's selling them a little short. They, uh, you know, this, this was put together by a very wealthy man named John Coza, and he went out and he hired a bunch of lawyers. And their website has a very lengthy section about various myths, what they call myths about national popular vote. And they have some, some treatment, some legal treatment there. Um, so it's not like they've totally ignored the issue, but their, uh, Mr. Coase's money did not, in my opinion, buy fully competent advice. Uh, I, I, I just think that they overlooked some things. The, the, there is also an ethical issue beyond the mere constitutional, you know, the, beyond the mere constitutional law issue, and that ethical issue is: Do you try to undermine the founders' design, the system, the way it's supposed to work? By uh, ignoring the constitutional amendment process, by getting by by using a technicality, even if you can use it, to get around the const the amendment process, I don't think the courts would permit them to do that. I don't think it's moral in any case, but um, uh, but it's possible that they could get by the courts, and if. Um, if they, they do get by the courts, there are certain horrific consequences we can talk about later in our discussion. Okay, well, let's go to break. When we come back, you've written a very important piece, more on how the national popular vote would import third world elections to America. So let's go to break. We'll be right back with Rob Nielsen. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect your private property rights. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. Since losing her mother to breast cancer, Karen Levine has helped to organize a local fundraising event called Karen's for the Cure, raising money for breast cancer research. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the Americhicks with Kim Munson. So call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. 
Come join the ADA Drive-In for all your favorite blockbuster movies. We're open seven days a week. Admission is only $9 per person and children under 12 are free. Friday, June 7th through Thursday, June 13th, features will include Aladdin, Dark Phoenix, and John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. And remember our popular Monday through Thursday pizza special. Get one 12-inch pizza served fresh and hot from our oven and two tall, cool 16-ounce sodas, all for only 12 bucks. Plus, now you can top it all off with our new sweet, crunchy churros and a steaming cup of hot chocolate. For more information, go to our Facebook page or visit our website at 88drivein.net. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation and offering you a conservatarian perspective. I'm thrilled to have on the line with me uh, Rob Nadelson. He has uh, been a constitutional law professor for many years. He is the senior fellow of constitutional jurisprudence at the Independence Institute. He is an excellent author. You've written several books, uh, Rob. What's your latest book? My latest book is called The Law of Article 5. It's actually a legal, legal treatise, but a lot of uh, lay people are finding it interesting. Article 5 is the part of the Constitution that deals with the amendment process, and there's a lot of uh, decided law there uh, from the courts and from other sources that uh, very few people know about. And so this article, this book collects all of that information. It's available at uh, Amazon.com. You know, and a lot of great constitutional work. And uh, where can people find all of your, you know, and your books, your, your website? Where's the best place to go for that? The best place is probably independenceinstitute.org. The Independence Institute, as many of your listeners know, is Colorado's free market uh, think tank. And um, I work with them extensively. I run their Constitutional Studies Center. So their website is independenceinstitute.org, and then you just click on the Constitution tab, and all my stuff is there. Okay, well, very good. Well, let's talk about this piece that was recently published in the Daily Caller, and it is at uh, on the Independence Institute website. That's independenceinstitute.org. And this is fascinating. Nobody else is talking about this. But you, uh, your piece is titled, More on How National Popular Vote Would Import Third World Elections to America. What are you talking about? Well, you're right. I mean, nobody is talking about this. People are talking about the constitutional issues, which we, which we just covered. People are talking about the risk that national popular vote could increase fraud uh, or about the, the difficulty of doing recounts and such. But they haven't actually looked at other countries that adopt this presidential election system. Now, a quick refresher here. What national popular vote would do is it would create in America a system whereby the president is elected by a pure national plurality of the vote. Plurality doesn't mean majority. It simply means whoever gets more votes than anybody else. Well, I asked the natural question, well, are there other countries that use this system where they simply elect a president by uh, a bare plurality? And the answer is uh, there are seven or eight of them. And, and those other countries are Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, uh, the Philippines, Paraguay, um, Venezuela, uh, and uh Taiwan, but with certain uh, protections that are not in the National Popular Vote Compact. Um, at any rate, the, 
so the, the question then becomes, well, what is the actual history of how this process works in those countries? And, the, and, and there are a number of answers to that question, but the big one is they commonly elect a president that the vast majority of voters oppose. Now, this is really ironic because much of the spirit in the national popular vote movement right now is because Donald Trump only won 36, 46 percent of the vote as opposed to Hillary Clinton's 48. But, but if you look at the actual countries that have adopted the national popular vote system, you, you can see that Donald Trump's 46 percent looks like a, a landslide by comparison. I'll give you one example. Uh, Panama just held its presidential election earlier this month. It was a brand new results. The president of Panama was elected with 33% of the vote. You can say, how could a guy with 33% of the vote get elected? And the answer is because everybody knows you can get elected by a fairly uh, low plurality, a bunch of candidates throw their hats in the ring. And so you had about four major candidates in, 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 in Panama. And there was and one guy got 33%. The runner-up got 31%. The guy who gets 33% becomes the president, even though two-thirds of the voters of Panama voted against him. Now, this is not an unusual situation in, um, uh, in, in, in national popular vote countries. It, in fact, is a very typical situation. Uh, another good example is Mexico. In the last election in Mexico, the winning candidate did get a small majority. But in two of the last three elections, they elected a president by 36 percent and 38 percent. Again, two-thirds of the people voted against the, the winner, but he becomes president anyway. In the Philippines in 1992, there was a fractured election. Fidel Ramos won the presidency with less than 24% of the vote. Now, if you think that American political life is divided and, and sometimes hateful now, imagine what's going to happen the first time we elect a president that only, say, 30 or 35% of the people favor. This is a recipe for, uh, for, for political disaster. And nobody's talking about this issue. Well, uh, let me just give you one, one more example okay. to show that this is not in any way unusual. The last four elections in Paraguay, which also follows the same system, in all four elections, the person elected was somebody that the majority opposed. By contrast, in our system, the popular vote winner wins about 93% of the time, and the popular vote winner generally, the, per, the person who wins the uh, presidency, generally gets a clean majority of the vote, not just 30 or 31 percent. Well, in the countries that you have mentioned, uh, the, the individual doesn't, is not prospering very well in many of those countries. No, the countries are turbulent, and I think the electoral, re, re, electoral process is one of the reasons why the, why the country is so turbulent. If you've been elected a president, okay, the, the Electoral College was adopted for all kinds of reasons. You may have heard that the Electoral College was adopted because the founders distrusted democracy. That's not really true. The Electoral College was 
elected because they had to balance about 11 different factors. And one of the factors that they considered was, look, we want a president that even if he's not the most popular guy in a country, at least is very widely popular and has a wide base of support. So Donald Trump, for example, gets, gets the support of 46 percent. That's a pretty, pretty wide base. Well, when you were elected the president of Panama with 33 percent of the vote or 20 or the president of the Philippines with 24 percent of the vote, you don't have the political base necessary to exercise political leadership. What, what happens almost from the beginning is uh, you've got a lot of people opposing you. Um, there's never a consensus behind your leadership. And so that does certainly feed turbulence. Also, because somebody could be elected with only, say, 30, 31 percent, there is a tremendous incentive for voter fraud. Because voter, you know, in this country under the Electoral College, if you engage in voter fraud and you're successful, the damage is limited to just one state. So, for example, in 2000, we had the, the hanging chads problem, but it was limited to Florida. Could you imagine if we had had national popular vote? We, we'd still be counting hanging chads today. <laughs> That's probably uh, and, true. You know, and, 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 the, uh, and the incentive to, to, to voter fraud nationally would be immense. So this particular system, I, I call it a third world or banana republic system because that's what it is. It, it, it is followed exclusively in third world countries, most of them banana republics, and it results, to, it results in banana republic uh, uh, outcomes. Well, and this is a very important piece, and you can find it at independenceinstitute.org. Uh, we only have about a couple of minutes left, Rob Nadelson, uh, but just a quick question. Uh, we had uh, put a piece up by Jane Cheney on my website and on uh, the email list, uh, which she was addressing the the defects of the national popular vote. And the comments that many people have said is, uh, they quote, make every voter equal. Now, I think you've kind of addressed this with this piece that you've done, but but what would be your, your quick elevator comment to somebody that says, well, we need to make every voter equal? Well, I don't think that a system that encourages voter fraud, a vote suppression, a vote, uh, a vote inflation uh, has the effect of making every voter equal. I mean, every fraudulent ballot is one that cancels out my vote. <laughs> you said it in less than 30 seconds. Very, very good. So final thought, Rob Nadelson. Final thought is, as you know, there is a proposed referendum to put this up on the ballot, and I think that people should sign the petition to do that, as, as I have. But also, I think it's really important to hold accountable the state legislators who, um, who voted for this ill-conceived and stupid plan without fully vetting it. Uh, they obviously did that in a, in a, in a fit of progress, progressive political passion. And they did not represent the people of Colorado or the people of the United States well in doing that, and that they need to be held accountable at the next election for that. And also the governor needs to be held accountable on this as well because he signed it, correct? You bet. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It was, it was, you know, given the, given the investigative uh, resources he has, the kind of investigation that he could have done, I mean, all, as I said, all you have to do is look at, look at the election returns of countries that follow the system. His failure to do that is absolutely inexcusable. Well, Rob Nadelson, it is so good to have you back. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kim. Okay. Have a great day. 
And our quote for today is from George Washington, his first inaugural address in 1789. He said, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered deeply, perhaps as finally, staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. God bless you, and God bless America.